Welcome to the Want to Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Franz Tapon. In this episode, I interview Glenn Jordan. He is the CEO of Empower. What do they do? Well, they combine several of the things that I'm quite interested in. Africa, as well as cryptocurrencies, all in one. They're working on the Cardano blockchain, and they're trying to solve a real estate problem. For a lot of people, cryptocurrencies are kind of an esoteric thing that, you know, like, what good do they do? What use do they have? This is a perfect case of a practical use for cryptocurrencies and how blockchain technology can actually make things better. And specifically, it is helping to ease the housing crisis in Africa. Africa has got about 1.3 billion people and it's going to be going up to over 4 billion people at the end of the century. So you're going to see a quadrupling of the housing needs in Africa and they are not building fast enough. Let's get into the details. Some of it is a bit technical. Some of it you might lose yourself in, but I hope it gives you a little taste of some of the things you can do with cryptocurrencies. So you're coming in from the Netherlands, but you have an interesting project regarding Africa with regard to using blockchain technology as well as developing real estate and building real estate in Africa. Some people might be scratching their heads and saying, how is this possible? What is this? Try to explain this in a nutshell first. Everybody assumes when you look at Africa and you look at the vast cities and the slums in the cities, the assumption is that there's no money. So everybody assumes that it is a financial issue. And it's not. It's a structural issue. It's actually that the money doesn't get to the right places because for most Africans, they pay a poverty tax, actually. Average African city is 30% more expensive to live at a lifestyle that is equivalent anywhere else in the world. And that is just due to structural issues. So what we're trying to do at Empower is to utilize blockchain technology to find, to develop a platform that links funding to where it is required. So to decentralize funding, both at the sourcing and at the application level. Okay, hold on one second. You're saying that it's a structural issue, it's not a money issue, but then you go on and say about that it's a funding, you know, like you're empowering funding. So yeah. help connect the two dots there. I'm confused. Okay, because it's, the, it's not that there isn't funding available, it's that the funding can't get to the right people. So, okay. so that's the, the structural effect, component. Exactly, exactly. The financial system just doesn't currently work for poor people. It's as simple as that. It's about financial inclusion. The banking systems, the structures of financial products, that doesn't work for the systems and processes that don't, that aren't in place. So to give you an example, a mortgage is a, is a product that we all know and understand in the first world. It's simple to understand. But what happens if you don't have uh, land tenure, if you don't have a, a title deed system, a secure title deed system? What happens if you, if you don't know who the person is? What happens if, for most people, 70% of the income is informal? So how do you account for an income? So a mortgage as a product just generally doesn't work for the vast majority of the, of the emerging market. And you're right about that. I have, having traveled to all the 54 African countries, you'll see that most people, if they have to buy something, they basically buy cash in many cases. Yeah. They have to save up, save up, save up, and then buy the entire property in one big go because financing it and getting mortgages is difficult. But you're opening up a huge can of worms because, or at least you're trying to bite off a big chunk because of the fact that you're, I assume, trying to use blockchain technology to identify people. 
So there's like the identity part of the blockchain, as well as the financial side of things. There's a lot of things that blockchain can solve. Are you trying to be the one chain that solves them all? No. No, what we're trying to do, we, we are trying to use it, but it's actually a practical application of the blockchain. So often what we find, as you say, is crypto and blockchain tends to be applications. And you, if you look at financial, the financial products that have been developed in the crypto space, a lot of it is around creating crypto products for crypto uses. What we're trying to do is utilize this new approach and new thinking and new mechanisms to actually solve real world problems. So we've called it a real fire project, actually, because we're bridging the two worlds between the real world and the challenges that we currently have with the financial systems and structural problems that don't work. And then the um, crypto space where we have these tools, techniques, as you say, for identification, for <clears throat> tracking processes, for following financial flows. Those are what become useful in, in this application. Okay, so let's try to paint an example, Glenn, of an, uh, just an example. Let's say I'm a person who has a modest income and I'm in Senegal. What can I, well, how, let's say, fast forward five years in the future, maybe even 10 years into the future, and you're seeing Empower doing everything it ought to be doing. What does a practical example look like? We already are applying it. So, so our pilot project, we're working, in fact, in, in Mozambique with a, with a developer partner. So we found a trusted partner in Mozambique who is already developing affordable housing. Their greatest challenge is that is the is fi financing for the individuals for the reasons I've just highlighted. So working through that trusted partner, we are able to supply funding in such a way that a the we the funding gets to them, okay, it gets to the provider, to, it gets to the developer, and then the repayment it's done on a lease to buy kind basis as opposed to a mortgage. So instead of trying to prove everything up front, we prove everything through the process. So the trusted developer onboards the individual and then they do a lease to buy. So instead of, instead of a mortgage effectively, they're leasing it. And at the end of that process, the, the house is theirs. Okay, so this so trusted developer. Go ahead. Sorry, carry on. No, I was just going to ask like lease to buy. I don't know exactly how that works. Like, for example, I don't know if it, it exists in the Netherlands. Maybe it exists in the United States, but. It just seems like my guess is that it would be inherently more expensive over the long term than mortgage, because if at least the buy were cheaper for the consumer, then everybody in the United States would do that instead of mortgages. Well, yes and no, because the issue is the reason you don't need to do it is because you can do the transfer and you have the legal system that supports the process. So here, what we're saying is until such stages, you've got that you've got the rights to own that property. The effectively, it needs to remain in the person who has it the other way around. So it has to be reversed. So you've got to reduce the risk. So it's the changing of the risk because there isn't an infrastructure to enforce that. So, so really what it's about is around, it's not about cost in that example. It's more around, again, around structure. Because in the US or in Europe, we've got entire legal systems and processes and systems that work. So everything works together. So you've got a title deed system, a legal and enforcement system, and a process that enables that to happen. In the developing world, 
all of that has become informal. Where there is a lack of a formal system, an informal system emerges. So right. it's how do you work with those informal systems and create that and then start to record that as opposed to the other way around, trying to say, well, without, a, without the formal system, we can't operate. Right. And so I wanted, Glenn, to illustrate this because I think a lot of people who are listening or watching to this is, are still scratching their heads because by their, by its very nature, blockchain, techno blockchain technology is pretty esoteric. For a lot of people don't really understand it at this point, let alone trying to understand the real estate market in Africa. It's another bag of beans that is hard to wrap your head around if you've never been here. I just want to share one anecdote. I remember when I was running around Ghana and so often... I saw the opposite of what I saw in the United States, or for that matter, in Europe. In Europe and America, you run around and you see all these for sale signs for property, right? Yes. In Ghana, it was the exact opposite. It's the not for sale sign. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, literally spray painted on the property saying, this is not for sale. Um, and I was like, why? And finally, somebody explained it to me is that so often people will come up because it's so informal that somebody will come up and say that they are the owner of this kind of semi-built, seemingly abandoned property and say, hey, my name is Francis. I own this property. And do you want to buy it? I'll sell it to you for, you know, $100,000. And then some, and I convinced the sucker to give me $100,000. The sucker goes ahead and gives me the money and then starts to move in. And then maybe a month later when the owner comes back, he finds this person saying, hey, but I already bought this from you. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm the owner. And then that whole shenanigan happens. So you're absolutely right. This is a huge problem. And it's not just Ghana, of course, in many places in Africa. So that's a practical issue. But I want to yep. stay on the practical side of things. I'm just trying to help flesh out your vision for people. So let's yep. stick with that Mozambique example. You found a trusted, yep. uh, you found a trusted, uh, party, third party, uh, who's yep. helping to build affordable housing. Yep. Give me an example. I'm a Mozambican. I'm a, I'm a middle class Mozambican. How can I then buy a house more affordably than I could in the past? In the past? You're saying lease to buy. Exactly. So, so what's happened for, with this particular example, with the, these, uh, this developer, Casarial in, in Beira and Mozambique. So they've taken the price of the initial price of a house from down from $50,000 to $10,000. That even as a capital sum is a large amount for some people to pay. The challenge then is, in terms of the mortgage rates, it's roughly about 29% to apply for a, for a mortgage rate. Now, as an interest rate, you know, for anybody, a 30% on whatever amount that is, <laughs> you know, we talk about micro lending, but it's the same. You know, it, it, just because the amount is smaller doesn't make the interest rate less onerous. So, so, the, so the challenge is, is that interest rate is not possible. So it's really a challenge for somebody to get into that. And they have to prove that they have an income. They have to have an historical income for them to qualify for that mortgage. So, so what the, what Casarial is doing is they have an application form, a tradition, a mechanism of trying to assess as best they can the informal income to determine if somebody qualifies. And if they qualify based on that, then they are allowed to lease that property. So effectively, they move in and they start to lease it. So they're living in it and effectively they're renting. So it's a rental, but it's a rent lease to buy, lease to own. Okay. So the process through that is, so that's the process. So we're able, we're able to supply in a lower interest rate, a lower return, because that's the objective here, because that's what we're trying to do is take 
you know, take capital from where there's low, where there's low returns to where there is actually high returns, higher returns. The challenge for us, and that you, you're going to come to this, is that as soon as you talk about African property, everybody immediately says exactly what you just say now. It's high risk. It's country risk, currency risk. You've got all of those challenges. So immediately before the project starts, that's why you have mortgage rates of 29% because that's the traditional model. So how does Empower bring those rates down? And is is does you're running on the Cardano blockchain, which uses the yeah. ADA token or currency. Uh, yeah. Is there a reason that you hope that you might take away some of the currency risk by moving there or, or am I missing something? Yeah, no, so the, the objective absolutely is to, to do that because the currency risk is, is, we're so used to the concept of currency coming from a nation state. And when you live in a nation state, which is really badly managed, you, are, you, are, you suffer the consequences of that bad management through no fault of your own, through an accident of birth, you suffer the consequences of that mismanagement. So what we're trying to do is, and that's the joy of blockchain and communities and, and value creation as opposed to pure currency, is if we can build an ecosystem of properties that are spread across different, different countries, different projects, different mechanisms, the risk becomes less country risk and more related to the, to the concept, the property risk. In other words, the portfolio risk. So as that builds, it becomes less and less related specifically to the currency. So the overall objective of that, that's why we have an EMP token, because it's around value transfer and about creating value within this context, within this environment, within this, this application. Okay, so let's take again a specific example of Mozambique. Um, I'm blanking out right now on the currency of Mozambique. What's the name of it's it? The Metacash. The which one? The Metacash. The Metacash. Well, I don't even yeah. remember that. That's been a while since I've been there. Um, so, so, so tell me if I've got their currency and I, how do I, let's say, how do I actually, does it get converted into ADA? Does it get converted to a stable coin? Uh, how does, you know, how does my, how do I pay my, my rent? Yeah. So your rent, obviously, from the point of view, we know and understand that we're not expecting your average consumer to be paying their rent in cryptocurrency. That's not practical and not going to work. We know that. So the rent and everything else will still be paid in traditional currency. What we're looking to do is absolutely to look at, at stability, how we can stabilize those currencies and stable coins. And that's part of what we do. And so if you look at our white paper, there's quite a detailed explanation of, of how we're looking to achieve that. It's quite complicated and, and, and long-winded, but there's a process by which we're seeking to, to um, effectively secure that investment at a, at, a, at a stable rate so that the rental just being paid in Metacash will be translated back into EMPs at the rate at which it was invested. So effectively, we're creating the EMP token for value. So when somebody puts, buys an NFT and contributes to, to, the, to this project or utilizing their finance to do that, utilizing what they have to do that, they put that, invest that into the, we invest that into the housing for them based on an EMP token. So the transfer of value is happening through the property portfolio token or the EMP token. 
Okay. And since you mentioned NFT, which is non-fungible tokens, these are unique digital assets that can be bought and sold on, uh, on the blockchain. And how somebody might be wondering, well, how does that relate to real estate other, aside from the fact that a house is a unique, every house is unique in its own way, right? Even cookie cutter houses. Yeah. As I said to you, as soon as you say to somebody, okay, we're going to be investing in uh, property in Africa, people go, oh, if you turn it into a straight financial investment, it becomes this process of, um, well, as I say, country risk, currency risk, project risk, you know, delivery risk, if, if the risk, if you look at it, and that's one of the reasons why it's so challenging and why there's the lack of infrastructure. So what we're trying to say is, is that how can we separate the value from what you're creating on, on both sides of the coin. So if we look at it so from the point of view of, as I say, the NFT, so where there is money, from those who have money, if we look at that, how can we create as much value on that side of the equation so it becomes attractive for people to put their, to, to purchase an NFT versus extractive from an interest rate from somebody on the ground? So in other words, because what we're not trying to do is extract as much money as we can from the person on the ground because that just exacerbates poverty. So what we're looking to do is, is find mechanisms to create as much value in the NFT as we can. And that NFT, so we've called it an empowerment card. So like, a, like an MBA top shop or something that has a value that is a collectible, people have passions. So whether it's environment, whether it's woman empowerment, whether it's economic empowerment, there's, a, mech, there's a, a, a bunch of other values or, very importantly, artistic merit. Can we create something of artistic merit that is a collectible on its own? People are collecting NFTs now which have no financial value. What we're seeking to do is create a collectible that has an intrinsic value as well as a financial value. One of the big problems that you had identified in Africa is the fact that only 16% of Africans have a permanent roof. And you quoted this. Now, somebody might hear that statistic and say, what do you mean? You know, only 16% have a roof over that. And I know you say permanent roof. Explain what that means, a permanent roof versus a temporary roof. Because yeah. almost every African I know has a roof over their head. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. So everybody has a roof over their head. But for the vast majority, as you know, having traveled through Africa so extensively, a lot of that is informal. So yes. in other words, a lot of that is in a, a makeshift stand to kind of shelter. A, Absolutely. A, yeah. You know, and that's what we're talking about here. So there are two, two major factors to the non-permanent. One I, is the, I, by the way, I'll, 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 I'll say one thing. Um, my grand, uh, my, the mother, I guess my mother-in-law who lives in Cameroon, actually, she just died, uh, last year, but, uh, actually this year, sorry. Um, and my mother-in-law, I built her a, a hut, a mud hut, effectively. And yeah, it cost a, like a couple hundred bucks. That's it. You know, 200 bucks. Yeah. And it yeah. was her house. So in a yeah. sense, she's a, that's her quote unquote permanent house. And Correct. she's the owner because I just gave her the money. She had somebody built it for her. But, uh, but on the other hand, it's once the rains come, in Chad, where she was living, there goes her roof and there goes her house. I mean, it lasts only about five years. Well, exactly. And so that's one of the reasons why we also do in our pilot project in Mozambique. 
because exactly the same scenario, and Mozambique is now a climate-affected country. So now what happens is Mozambique and Baira particularly gets, gets hit by cyclones. So when a cyclone comes through an area like that, if you can imagine your mother-in-law's hut or makeshift shelter or something put together, it's gone. So when the city gets, a, gets hit by a cyclone, most people lose their homes completely and everything in it. So the right. impact is immense. The impact is absolutely profound when a cyclone goes through. It's far more profound than even if it goes through any, you know, a first world country. So, so the impact of that is massive. And that's what you're talking about, exactly a permanent home. It's not that they don't have a, a roof over their heads. They do. But it's impermanent from the point of view of both construction and or ownership, because a lot of people coming into the city will also establish and rent, actually, because the land is owned by somebody else. And whether that is legally owned or just informally owned, there is somebody who owns that land. And often they rent that land out for somebody to build a, a um, makeshift shelter on, build their own makeshift shelter on, but charge rental for that. And that's there's normally a, what, what happens. There's a Peruvian economist, and I'm completely blanking out on his Hern- name. Hernando de, Hernando de Soto. Thank you. That's that's right. Hernando de Soto. He That is his big... Um, thesis, exactly. which yeah. is uh, title and real estate and ownership is the, the key thing that's not just holding Africa back, but all impoverished regions of the world. Well, that that's exactly how we came how we came to empower because exactly that I was asked by a Dutch asset manager, how do we create pensions for people who aren't formally employed? And it was that challenge, and it was a really interesting question because how do we create pensions for people who who aren't formally employed and therefore have, you know, for us, for people who are in the formal employment system, you know, pension deductions are normal normal thinking processes. But if you're living on the poverty line, it's impossible to plan for tomorrow if you're trying to survive today. So how do we create pensions for people? And that was exactly that. When I started looking into that and trying to work out how we could do that, exactly that, Hernando de Soto's work, the challenge with that is that it relies on those structures, on those structures that we've just been talking about. It relies on a title deed. So you can say, right, well, we need a title deed system. But actually, we don't just need a title deed system because we need a legal system that that supports that title deed system. And then you need the entire, you know, the transfer mechanisms for that title deed system. So you need conveyances, lawyers, and all of that costs money, which most people on the ground can't afford. So in South Africa, we have two parallel universes in South Africa because you have a title deed system that works perfectly for, for rich people. But for poor people who can't afford the title deed system, they transfer the title informally. So despite the fact that there is a title deed system that works, for most of the for the vast majority of the population, the transfers have happened informally because the, the legal fees are too high or somebody's died intestate and it's just been passed on because it's too difficult to and complex to manage that. So that it all just gets handed on informally anyway. So again, you're back to the same problem. How do you now support somebody to create wealth on that land or property? if effectively there's no title so the banking system doesn't see them and they don't exist. And there we've been very lucky because there's another emerging technology that's supporting us. 
And that's a, a changing building technology. And building technology is changing. And that's part of what we're trying to do with Empire is also to push this concept because it's around circular building. Circular building is becoming very folk, the, you know, very much the focus globally because of the impact on the environment of traditional what is building. that? Conc Sorry? What is that? Explain. Circular building. Yeah. So circular building is the ability to reuse components that you build with. So effectively, it's around modular and reusability. So it's around utilizing structures that don't just get, you know, we, we don't just knock down, smash down and put into landfill. So it's really around creating environmentally friendly housing, which is actually less permanent, if you like, because it's not based on concrete and steel, etc. So the opportunity is existing with circular building for us to almost bypass that process of title deeds, because now we can say, if you have a circular building that's reusable it's, and, and modular, we can actually reuse those components. Effectively, it becomes an asset that's not tied to the ground. So that building can become more like a traditional income generating asset. It just become, can become movable. And so it's to draw, try and blend that into the African and emerging market concept. And that becomes a, also a very exciting opportunity because putting those two elements together, you have this pent up demand for this massive property requirements. You know, as we say in our white paper, there are 50 million homes that, that are need to be built in Africa and that are in demand in Africa and yet are not being built. So this presents a very, very exciting opportunity to find ways to finance that and to build it in such a way that we can de-risk it. And I think 15 million is a vast, vast underestimation of the actual yeah. potential because in the next, uh, at the rest of the century, the population of Africa will quadruple. It's going yeah. to go to, it's going to run 1.1 billion to about 4.4 billion. And so with a quadrupling population, they need four times more housing than they already have. And yep. they don't even have enough housing today. So exactly. probably housing has to go up like six, seven times, if you will, to, to be able to just accommodate and put a roof over, uh, over the head of people, permanent or impermanent, some sort of roof. <laughs> um, exactly, exactly. And it, it just Francis, that you, we, I often say that to the team. We often discuss that in the team. If we can support the building of 100,000 homes per year, it will take us 500 years to address the backlog. Right. That's right. right. <laughs> That's before no, you're, you start you're, you're that population about, growth that we're talking about. Right. You need a billion homes. You don't need five, 50 million yeah. homes. You need a yeah. billion homes. I mean, literally to, to, because building a home, I mean, I could, I could turn around the camera here. I could just show you. There's a, a house right there, um, being built. And I don't know how long that thing has been there. It's probably been there for, uh, a couple of years now. I mean, things get built so slowly in Africa, so slowly. And uh, because especially personal homes. So it's, it, so if you want a billion homes, you need to start building now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And we need to find ways of doing that. And that's what's exciting around the new thinking and the new technologies. And that's what's really exciting about it because the old systems and the old technologies just haven't worked. It's as simple as that. They just have not worked. They haven't worked in this environment. They haven't worked for in, a, in, a, in a context. So what we try and take, and we take it in the, in the world that does work, so in the first world, in the US, in Europe, we try and take those systems and apply them 
into the developing world. And, you know, obviously we're focusing initially on Africa. They just don't work. It's simple. So how do we create mechanisms that do work? We have to take what's existing, what works on the ground and support that. We have to take that. Just that, that example that you just utilized. It's brilliant, as you say, and classic, because that house will stand there for years while people try and get more money to build it because they have no access to capital. It's That's as right. simple as that. Yep, yep. Simple I as see that. it all the time. Had, all the exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah, no, and, and, and there's a, another anecdote that you probably have heard many times also is that Africans, since they sometimes don't have banks, they store their wealth in bricks. Yeah. And, and people yeah. are scr scratching their head. What do they mean? It's that many African homes are built by cinder blocks. And let's say each cinder block costs $100. Well, when you have, let's say, 200 bucks, you save 200 bucks. Instead of putting it in a bank or anything like that, they'll buy two cinder blocks. For 100 bucks each, let's just say, I'm, I'm simplifying the, the equation here. And then they start, start stacking it so that over the years, you'll start seeing, if you keep revisiting the, the same man's home, you'll start seeing there's more and more cinder blocks kind of getting stacked up. And eventually he's got enough cinder blocks, he can actually start building the house. But that's how a lot of people save, literally brick by brick. Absolutely. And in the meantime, he is living in rented accommodation. Yes. Which is pain. Okay. Right. Generally, 30% or more, more expensive because of the lack of supply. Right. So the living, so just to give you another example, in South Africa, when, when we did the research to live in a township, in a tin shack, in, a, in Imazamayetu, in Hart Bay, it was between four and seven times more expensive per square meter than it was to live in the center of Cape Town in a proper formal environment. Now, when we presented that to the McKinsey consultants and to the financial institutions, they said, your research is wrong. And it's not wrong. And we proved that it's not wrong because why it is more expensive is because you're able to go smaller. So you go to smaller units. So the smaller units are literally the cost per square meter is that much higher. So people are paying high rentals so they're paying rentals that are higher than that would be if they were living in their own accommodation, but they can't, they don't, can't afford to get there because it's a capital requirement. How many of us could afford to, to save for a house? Now, you know, it would take us 20 years to save for a house. That's why we get a mortgage. Right. It's simple. So it's just, it's just turning that around. How do we enable that to happen in a way that they can live in that house first and then pay it off rather than the other way around? But without the systems and infrastructure that exist in the first world, the systems don't know how to do that. The structures don't know how to do that. Now, a lot of people have heard of Bitcoin. Some people have heard of Ethereum, which is another blockchain, which is quite popular, allows smart contracts. You're getting involved in the third most popular one, but is far behind Ethereum as far as market share, which is called Cardano, and, and uh, they have the ADA token. Now, why did you decide to go with Cardano? And what do you see as the pros and cons? Yeah, um, major reasons that we chose Cardano. First being, we really like the, uh, I'm a noob to the blockchain space. I'm oh, a complete okay. noob. I, I'm, I don't, you know, for me, this is the reason I got so excited about it is because it was a, a real world uh, solution to a practical problem. Um, and 
So for me, it started looking into it because when I was first exposed to, to crypto, etc., I, I wasn't sold. You know, I saw it as, a, as almost a mechanism that was trying to solve something that, that didn't, I didn't see the solution for it. I didn't see the real world usage case. But as that, as I've got exposed to it and it's grown, I realized that it really does have, but particularly what attracted me to Cardano was the, the academic rigor. Cardano has yes. taken a slower approach. They've taken a more academic approach. That's more, and that combined with the fact that they have really t- recognized that it is in the developing world where the systems are lacking. So not to try and go into the areas where you're going to be butting up against, you know, vested interests and existing systems that work. Why, why change systems that work? When we're dealing with Africa, as we've just this whole conversation been explaining, the systems don't work. Here's the opportunity for new systems and opportunities. And Cardano um, and Charles Hoskinson and this team are particularly focused on that. And that was part, another reason for us that was really exciting because so often when we come up and try and we've tried to discuss these kinds of things, as I say, we put our hand up in a developmental you know, conference or whatever. It's like, great, Africa's great, but you know, there's so much risk and there's so much this. And you know, it's always negative. So to have a whole community that goes, this is fantastic. This is a great opportunity. And it's based on self-interest, which for me is even more in, more exciting and interesting. It's not based on be, doing good. It's based on doing good for the, for everybody's benefit. And right. that's the only way that do, doing good becomes sustainable. But Glenn, I, one of the things that Cardano has done great inroads in is in, with the government of Ethiopia. They've done yeah. great progress. So why yeah. not choose that, or maybe you are choosing that, as your test pro pilot place to, as opposed to Mozambique? Yeah, it was just actually because of experience and relationships. That's really what drove us to Mozambique. We, we had exit relationships with the trusted developer. Um, so it was easier for us to, to, you know, test and, and we're going through that process with them as a, as a testing, as a test base. Um, that was, it's really just because it was closer to us and, and personal relationships. That was the reason why more than a strategic, um, more than a strategic, oh, you know, hanging on the coattails of Kadana, it was more from our point of view, we could be more effective in what we were doing by partnering with Casa Real in Mozambique. Okay. Uh, and good. once we've, once we proved it in Mozambique, Mozambique is one of the poorest countries in Africa. Yes. If it works in Mozambique, we know then it will work anywhere. Right, that is true. And my question is to get back to the NFT issue. I'm still not too clear about how NFTs okay. and the roles they play. It's still kind of murky for me. Can you help me out? Okay, sure. If you if you think of an MBA top shop or a, a work of art, a, a digital piece of art, that becomes people collect that. It has no financial, it has no real financial value, but it's collectible and therefore it has value. It has value to somebody for, for some reason. It has value to someone. And those can trade at, you know, at, at prices and, and they become tradable and value. So for us, we were trying to say, how do we create that kind of value? What's important to you? That house you've just shown opposite, opposite you being built. The challenge for us is if we built a billion homes like that, we would destroy the planet. So how do we do this kind of build while supporting the environment? People are passionate about that. So people are prepared to put their money into, into helping people, to making a return, to making money, 
and also because they're passionate about the environment. Some people are passionate about women empowerment. So how do we create value? So instead of a collectible that is one particular player in MBA top shops or one particular team or a collection, how can we create value for people to collect items that actually when they buy those cards, that money is utilized for housing in Africa? Then that money generates a return that is linked to those cards. So not only is it something of value that is artistic value, that is of value for me, what I'm passionate about, but it also has a financial value. So now we're starting to link things together that haven't been linked before. It's how do we create value around where people have money and wanting to collect things and are wanting to contribute about topics and things that are passionate to them. So we can link, we can directly link the so if you think about now impact investing, we'll put my money into a financial institution, it goes into a black hole and every quarter they report on something that they're doing with the money. Now we are able to link directly what the story is, where your money is going, the house that's being built. We can show that directly and link it so you know exactly what your money is doing. You know exactly how that is, is being done and what's important to you. That can become valuable to you. It could become valuable to somebody else. How do we create that kind of value and a whole market for that that stimulates okay. investment into housing? I think I understand Just, what you're saying. Let me try to translate it back to you and, and see if I'm getting it. One of the things that NFTs do that's pretty unique is that let's say I'm an artist. Let's say I'm a, a, a yeah an artist and I paint a Picasso worth you know a, you know a painting. And normally when Picasso sells his painting, he sells it, he only makes money once. The time he, se- he, he made his painting, he sells it to the first person. After that, if the painting gets sold 20, 20 times after that, Picasso makes no money off the, the succeeding sales, even though they might go into the millions of dollars. What NFTs allow artists to do is to then get a percentage of those sub- subsequent sales and generate yeah. revenue stream from that. So yeah. it sounds like that's you're trying to leverage that mechanism, if I'm understanding you correctly, so that you create an NFT that then pays some sort of dividend or rent, if you will, to the Africans who are the owners who minted that NFT. Am I getting is that uh, it? No, no, no. It's the other way around. So okay. what we're doing is so you buy that NFT and you say, as you say, it's a pers- work of art. Brilliant. You you buy it. And you now have this, this piece, this, this NFT. It's a work of art, but the money that you've paid for that NFT, we utilize to build a house in Mozambique. Now we're not doing that on a charity basis. We're doing that on a, on a, on a basis by which that will get paid back. It's a lease to buy. Those lease payments are linked back to that NFT. So it has a financial value. So oh, you're I now see. getting a return on your NFT. Okay. If we make it just a purely financial thing, then you go, oh, Mozambique, oh, whatever. Then you're going, oh, I want 30% because mine's in Mozambique. What we're trying to say is, but this is a, this, this is, has its own value and it's its own value because you would collect it if it didn't have a financial value. Right. You would collect right. it anyway. Right. So it has a value that you would use to buy and sell in any event. Now it has an added value because not it ha- it's generating an income for you. Right. 
So now that becomes tradable on the financial aspect and the non-financial aspects. And you can know exactly what your money is being used for directly. So you can have a direct link to that, that, that individual home community story. So it becomes a, it becomes a whole mechanism of, of building a community. Now, Glenn, I admire so much of what you're doing and what Empower is doing. At the same time, I fear that you're biting off more than you can possibly chew. And so how do you balance that? Because, I mean, you're going after a monumental, monumental. I mean, people are listening to this. They don't even understand the scale of what you're trying to solve. It's just beyond. I can barely grasp it myself. And I imagine, I don't know, where's your funding coming from that allows you to, to do this at this point? Well, we're busy with an ISPO as we speak. So watch the space. We'll be launching our ISPO. Our first funding we got through Catalyst. So we got through the Cardano Catalyst, um, which is the seed funding aspect of Cardano. Um, so we got funded by them and, and the, the, by the community. And the community is helping us to build the first houses in Mozambique to prove this concept. And we've just launched our first NFT. So it's a founding community NFT. So it's just to demonstrate that we can, that we can do this, that we can, you know, we can mint NFTs and we can create that mechanism. And obviously the next stage is to build the platform. As you say, I think the key part around this is we're not attempting to solve this problem. We're attempting merely to be a platform that links people together who solve this problem. And that's the joy again of this technology. We can never attempt, we, I don't know the building conditions in Dakar. I don't know the building uh, regulations in Beira, in Mozambique. I can't, by, in, by any stretch of the imagination, try and solve those issues. But there are people on the ground who can. So to trusted partners, trusted partners, and again, that's where the blockchain, we build that kind of trust on the blockchain. People can see it, can understand it. You start to build credibility and in a trustless environment, we start to build that through trusted partners. We will be able to build the platform that links people together. That's the objective. We're not attempting to solve this. We're just attempting to be the meat in the sandwich that links people together, that enables them to solve the problems at the edges, which is where it needs to be solved. So I think that's part of it. So right now we are really... Doing it, it sounds like a lot, but in reality, it's actually about around enabling people who are already doing this kind of work, like a Casa Real in Mozambique. It's about supporting them in doing their work. They're doing it. How can we support them through the technology and funding in a better way? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, but... No problem. Uh, um, okay, so. What are the what are the next steps? What are you thinking is going to happen in the year 2022? Okay, so yeah, we're busy with our ISPO. Um, we're busy with our ISPO. When's that going to launch? So that's going to launch. We we're seeking Explo- by to the launch way, that. Ex- sorry, interrupt. Explain what an ISPO is for those who don't know. Okay, so. yeah, it's an initial stake pool offering. So mm-hmm. that's for people who have uh, ADA who right now they stake their ADA and they get a reward. So rather than taking the risk of buying EMP tokens, what we're doing is we're saying, stake your tokens as you would with in a, into a stake pool and the, the rewards will come to you in EMP tokens. So we'll, we'll do that. So it's a way of us raising funding with at least risk to the community. 
So it's really around you're not risking in traditional terms, you're not risking your capital, but you're interest you're risking your interest or your return. That's right. the tra- kind of traditional speak. So that's what an ISPO is. We're lo- hoping to launch that on the 4th of October, which is uh, World Habitat Day. So oh, wow. within the next couple of weeks, it will probably be the 7th because that's the epoch. So that's the time timing. Um, and yeah, so that's what we're seeking to do in terms of raising finance and then the start of the development plan. So we have a whole white paper and a timeline on that, which outlines the entire way forward. But really for us, the next year is going to be around developing the platform, proving this concept in more detail, extending the pilots into, you know, larger proof of concepts and other, other territories and proving that this can, not can, can and will work. What is somebody, let's say if I have 50,000 ADA and I want to stake it into your pool, what do yep. I get out of that? Do I get an NFT out of that or what happens? No, you get EMP tokens. So instead of okay. ADA rewards, you'll get EMP tokens, which effectively okay. is a, con- is you then become part of the Empower community and part of the, um, so you, you get an Empower token, yeah. Okay, and then those empower tokens will raise, go up in value based on what? What will what will drive their value up? The portfolio of properties. So as we build that portfolio of properties, the value of the ecosystem will become more and more valuable because more and more value will be being transferred between it. So the purchase of the properties, the funding of the properties, rather than the purchase, let me be correct, the funding of the properties will be done through the platform and the repayments will be done through the platform. So there'll be this constant flow of value through the platform, which as that portfolio grows, will become valuable. And as you say, so we've, we've starting at, at this level, but as we start to meet the needs and it, that entire process grows, this platform be, could, could become incredibly valuable. Okay, so our, in, our, in 2021, you're planning to, to do your, uh, your, your initial staking a reward system. But what about 2022? So 2022, we're going to be developing the platform and extending the pilot project to other territories and, and um, to other territories. So you're so we'll not be building going to more stay focused on and building not, not just Mozambique? Correct. Not just Mozambique. Okay. So we're Why in discussions not? with other players. Why not just stay in Mozambique until you've kind of... So in many startup communities, I mean, I'm from Silicon Valley. They always teach us to yeah. establish a beachhead. And get yeah. really, really dominant in one area before you. So Amazon did that with books. They became very good bookseller and then eventually went on to CDs and music and slowly and then eventually did everything. So why not do Mozambique first and only Mozambique for a long time and eventually maybe go to another Portuguese speaking country? So then things can translate over very well and go to like Angola maybe or um, yeah. Cape Verde. Uh, yeah. and, and, and then eventually, instead of like tackling haphazardly across the, the continent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the intention really on that is, is twofold. One is because the system, the platform is dependent effectively on the proof. Cause what we're trying to do is demonstrate that other people can come on board because we're not doing the building. It's about, it's about onboarding. So what we're trying to do is demonstrate. So whether that's on in Mozambique or another country, the difference really is not really, it doesn't really matter to us. That's the joy of the blockchain environment. And that's really what we're trying to prove. 
So the territory, it's really from a conceptual perspective. The application is, as you say, what we're doing. It's around forging a relationship. So we're not trying to go beyond what we're doing. It's about a relationship with a trusted, uh, a trusted supplier. That's what's key. So by doing that, whether we were doing that, extending that in Mozambique or extending that elsewhere, in fact, in our world, it doesn't really make a difference. Great. Well, Glenn, how do people learn more about Empower? I think it's empower.io. It is. It is. www.empower.io. Uh, on there is all the information. Be fantastic. Please register your interest uh, if you're interested. We also have a Telegram group. It's empower underscore io uh, on Telegram, whereby we announce and you know share information. Um, but all of that information is on our website. So it'd be great, great to have Great to have people, passionate people aboard. That's what we're looking for. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember ftapon. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the Wander Learn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.